So you guys remember, we have been witnessing in Nehemiah this awesome revival that's been happening amongst the people of Israel, right? And we've looked at all of these different keys to the revival, and I think they're important keys because nothing's changed. Every time we see revival in the church, we always kind of see it with these key factors. And what are those key factors? Time in the word, right? Revival comes from spending time in God's word. Time in worship. That's not just singing songs either, right? That's just reflection and spending time really chewing and praying and spending time with God in worship to him. Time in celebration, recognizing the things that God is either doing in the moment or has done in the past, right? They celebrated the Feast of Booze during this time, the Feast of Tabernacles, as it's known. And what was that a celebration of? The fact that God was faithful to them for 40 straight years as they trekked through the desert. And I'll give you guys a little hint into something. We're going to kind of maybe look at that because the next book we're going to in a couple weeks is going to be Exodus. And so I'm excited about that. Super stoked. We're going to study the heck out of some Exodus. But right now, we're going to finish up uh, these next two chapters. So time in the word, time in worship, time in celebration. And the final thing that I think is the key that comes out of all those things is a heart of obedience. That's what we see. Every time we look at revival, no matter when it happened, you guys, even when it happened in the 60s with the Jesus movement and the start of the Calvary Chapel movement, you guys, all those things were there and it led to hearts of obedience. Guys that were doing drugs and doing all this crazy stuff walked away from all of it and started following Christ. And you guys, man, I want that for us. So tonight, we're gonna keep digging into what walking out this obedience looked like for them. First off, they were gonna commit tonight. We're gonna look at this. They're gonna commit to now move into the city now that the walls are finished, now that the tabernacle has, or should I say the temple has been finished, All of that is done. We've looked at all of that stuff. We saw all their celebrations. Now they're going to go through the work of moving some people into the city. They've given their tithes, and now they're literally going to tithe themselves. Why? Well, we're going to read, you guys, that they're going to step out and obey, and they're going to bring in one-tenth of all the people, all of the population they're going to bring in to the city. So it's literally like a tithe of humanity (laughs) into the city itself. So... Here's the deal, you guys, and this is the thing I kind of want us to get at tonight. They were here in revival. They were speaking the things that need to be said. We just saw that they wrote this covenant out and they signed it. Their words were big. Here we're going to see that they're actually talking the talk and walking the walk. They're going to step out and obey God in this. And can I say this? We are not really alive in Christ, honestly, without our actions lining up with that. I'm not saying perfection. I'm saying a heart to say, God, you want me to go and do this? I'm willing to do this. Imperfectly, of course, right? Using the wrong words sometimes, saying the wrong things sometimes, maybe even walking in the wrong direction at times and saying like, oh God, you actually meant right, not left, right? Like that happens, but the heart to do that is the thing that matters, you guys. We can talk all day long and we know a lot of Christians that do that, don't we? Sadly, I know a lot of Christians, oh man, pastor, blah, 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 and they got all these big words. And then sometimes, sadly, their actions show something completely different week after week after week. And then you end up being like, hey man, are these just words in your mouth or are they really what you believe, right? So he wants our lives, you guys. Not just our money, not just our words. He wants our lives. Chapter 11, verse one, you ready? 
Here we go. We're going to make it far. Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. That's all the further we're going to go for right now. So the people of Israel cast lots. You guys, I want to talk a little bit about this because it sounds a little bit like gambling, doesn't it? Like they're rolling the dice. Ha-da! Right? You get, like snake eyes. No, <laughs> that wasn't the way this worked. That wasn't the point of all this. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. We actually see it in the New Testament. You guys remember when Matthias was called after Judas died? How did that happen? By casting lots. Is it something that we do today? No, it isn't. But the reality is, is, and I need us to hear this, the point of all this was that they trusted God that in the midst of casting lots, that this wasn't just a gamble, but that God was actually going to guide and direct, and he was going to do what he wanted to do through this process. I need us to hear that because it's important. Because I think sometimes, if you're like me, you hear casting lots and you think something crazy like, oh, well, they're just gambling their lives away here and saying it's God. That wasn't really what was happening. That wasn't the heart behind it ever. Keep in mind, you guys, the walls are rebuilt, the temple's rebuilt, but the inside of the city itself was in shambles. It was a wreck. So I need you to hear this. When we read that they blessed the people that willingly offered themselves to go, it was because they were like, good on you, man. I don't want to do it, right? That was kind of the idea here. We see in some ways, you guys, this idea of casting lots is still playing out today in our lives. We might not recognize it as that, but here's how we do that. Did you guys ever hear this idea of like, Lord, close the door? If you don't want me to walk through that door, then close the door and lock it. Have you ever heard the idea of like, Lord, open the door wide? That is in a sense, casting of lots, right? We're trusting that when we step out in something that we know that the Lord might be leading us in, that we can trust God's sovereign hand. And when we're asking him to do those things, just like for them casting lots, we can say, okay, God, if this door is locked and shut, then you are obviously telling me that this is not the direction you want me to go. So in a way, we still do it. We just don't do it the way they did it, right? But I, I want us to hear this because I feel like there's something in this for us, you guys. I think sometimes we get so wrapped around the axle about God's will, and we get so hung up on God's will, and we sometimes end up kind of missing the main point, which is this. If we are in God's word and we know God's word, and we know that like to take this job versus this job, that neither of these jobs, right? We're not talking about going and selling drugs as your one job and, and going and being a hooker as your other job. Those things would not line up with God's word, not in God's will, don't do it. That's obvious. If you're debating a job at being a manufacturing person or going back to school to learn a job trade or something like that that's going to help you, and we see in the word that there's nothing in there that says that neither of those are wrong, well, then guess what? You can go to God and say, Lord, which way do you want me to go? And you can try both and trust that he's going to direct you. And guess what? If you have two doors open, pick one. We freak out about God's will so much, I think. And sometimes I feel like we analyze ourselves right into paralysis, right? We then end up not doing anything. And so, man, I, I kind of like this idea of just looking at it and them saying, you know what, God, we need to fill this city. 
That's the thing that we feel like we're called to do, and we're going to do that by tithing ourselves to it. There's going to be one-tenth of the entire population here. God, you figure it out. I love it. And we're going to see just how amazing it worked out. So I want you to notice, though, that there's this special blessing that's poured out on those people that just chose to get more uncomfortable, to give up their ancestral home. Because remember what happened when they moved back? They moved back. They came back and immediately they were like, oh, my family said we resided over here in Bethlehem. And so they went over and found their spot and they're like, hey, here it is. And they took it back over. These guys were taking and moving away from that and leaving that to move into this broken down, beat down city inside to occupy and use what God had intended for them to use. You guys, we can trust God. We can trust that he's going to be in the midst of our decisions, that we don't have to freak out and worry about it. We can also trust him, you guys, if the door that's open is the one that you're like, oh, that one's hard. God, I, I kind of wanted this one that's closed. That's a lot easier. Just let me stay where I was. Like, let me just not do anything crazy. Like, can I just do that, Lord? And he's like, no, it's locked. We can trust that even when we're moving towards something harder in our mind, that God has something in it for us. It's a blessing. And we see here that they were blessed. The, not just them, but you guys, the people around them saw that they were willing to step out in it, you guys. And so they themselves blessed them. Do you understand that? A willing and obedient heart is always going to be blessed by God. It's just a fact. Not a perfect heart, a willing and obedient heart. And many times, you guys, the people around us, Christians, see that and either it brings conviction to their heart, which is good for them, or at a minimum, they see and they're like, man, maybe, maybe they're like, man, I'm glad I'm not the one that has to do that. But they're also like, that's awesome. I want to be more like that. There is always a blessing. There's always a blessing for us. So the people trusted that God knew what he was doing. And so when the names were called, you guys, they obeyed. And I'd say this, we do very well to do the same. <laughs> so, like I said before, you guys, God's will, I don't think it's that difficult. I really don't. If it lines up with God's word, which means we need to be in it to understand it. We also know that God's word tells us that in an abundance of counselors, there is wisdom. So I would say that if you're gonna make some massive life decision, there's a church body here for a reason. Grab a hold of a few folks that you really trust and say, you know what, I wanna run this by you. Can you pray with us about this? Can you, if God gives you any wisdom or guidance in the word, would you tell us? Would you give us, help us to figure this out? Like that's wise. But if there's an alignment to God's word, He's not going, you know, he's never going to tell you something that goes against his own word, right? He's not going to tell you to go and do a mass murder spree. He's just not, right? But I also want to say this, you guys, and this is the hardest part about God's will, I think, for us sometimes, and it's what I was already saying. A lot of times when the Holy Spirit's prompting us to do something, we don't want to do it because it's hard. And so I've heard people say like, well, I mean, I didn't really know if it was exactly God's will that I would uh, go and speak a really hard truth to my friend that keeps talking nonsense to me. And I, I just didn't know, but I, I kind of felt like I should. And I really felt like maybe I, I was supposed to, but I didn't know if it was God's will or if it was just me. And I, listen, can I tell you something? 10 to one, your flesh is never gonna want to put you in an uncomfortable position. We always wanna be comfortable. So if it's uncomfortable and it's speaking a hard truth, can I just say it's probably God's will? just walk it out. Just do it. 
Are you going to do it perfectly? Nope. And that's okay. Do it anyway. Walk it out. What about this one, you guys? What if you're called to help in children's ministry? Do you need to like sit around and be like, oh God, do I really, am I supposed to be doing this, Lord? Because I don't want to, and it's hard, you know? And then, and then it's gonna require of me to come to another service after that, so I keep getting filled in. Like, Lord, is that really what you want from me? If you feel a prompting on your heart for that, I can promise you one thing. It's definitely not Satan. It's like, hey, go help those kids learn about Jesus, <laughs> Right? Stuff like this seems pretty obvious, but aren't these the things that we hear other Christians say? Like, well, I just don't know. Mm, Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. We want to shy away from the pretty obvious things because it's hard. And here's the deal. If you are here tonight and you've done that in the past, God's grace is sufficient for you. But can I say this? In the future, let's just walk in obedience. Something that always strikes me is how punk rock it is. And I use those words intentionally. How punk rock it is in this world today that says, you do you, boo. You do whatever makes you happy. You figure out what what works for you. It doesn't matter that it hurts everybody else. It doesn't matter that it literally doesn't make scientific sense. It doesn't matter about any of those things. You do whatever the heck you please, regardless of that. It is super punk rock to live counterculture to that and say, you know what? I'm going to do what Jesus tells me to do, period. I love it. I want to live my life that way instead of cowering in fear to what the world says I should do. Man. Verse 3 through 24. If you've read ahead, you'll know that I'm not reading those. <laughs> we, have, we are never going to get through two chapters if I read all that, and you don't want to hear that. So if you really want to know all those names, go ahead and read it. Verse 3 through 24 speaks of all the names that are brought out and, and in that one-tenth, right, of the people. And so we see in this group, leaders of the people, the children of Judah, children of Benjamin, the Levites, and the gatekeeper, gatekeepers. You guys, God knew what he was doing. He gave a healthy mix of each one of those groups. And remember, chosen by lot. Those people, out of those people, there were 468 men of Judah, 928 men of Benjamin, 1,192 priests, that's pretty important considering the temples in Jerusalem, 284 Levites, and 172 gatekeepers for a total, you guys, of 3,044 men. 3,044 men. Look at that list. In that list, you guys, and we read some different things. In verse 6, we read that all the sons of Perez, which were of the, the children of Judah, right? who dwelt in Jerusalem were 468, what? Valiant men. They were, they were like hardcore, man. They were like Delta Force. God knows what he's doing. He brought in enough to defend that place. He brought in enough priests and Levites to handle the business of the temple. And there were, already, there were also some that were outside that could deal with you know, people out in the world, right? Doing, doing the stuff out in the communities. But do you guys see how cleanly God's lot fell. It wasn't overloaded. It wasn't only priests that were going to be like, we can't defend anything. (laughs) No, he knew what he was doing. He did it just the way he wanted to. And it's awesome to see that, you guys. We can trust God. Verse 25 says this. And as for the villages with their fields, some of the children of Judah dwelt in Kerjath Arba and its villages, 
Debon and its villages, Je- uh, Jacobzeel and its villages, in Jeshua, Moladah, Beth Palat, Hazar Shual, and Beersheba and its villages, in Ziklag and Makanah and its villages, in En Romin, Zorah, Jeremuth, Zenoah, Adulum, and their villages, in Lachish and its fields, in Azekah and its villages, they dwelt from Beersheba to the Valley of Hinnom. In other words, these people that lived outside took over all the area that was remaining for Jerusalem, or, or should I say for Israel, right? They, there's like, I think, 14 to 17, I can't remember exactly the number, 14 to 17 different major communities that they were residing in all throughout the area, right? Verse 31. Also, the children of Benjamin from Geba dwelt from Michmash, Ijah, and Bethel and their villages in Ananoth, Nob, Ananiah, and in Hazor, Ramah, Gitium, in Hadid, uh, Zebuim, and Nabalat, in Lod, Ono, and the Valley of Crafts, Craftsmen. Some of the Judean divisions of Levites were in Benjamin. So in other words, some of the Levites were just sitting in there in those same villages with Benjamin, with the tribe of Benjamin. So you guys, here they were, the rest of the people. Nehemiah, right, he is making it clear that when they went in and occupied their places, they filled out the land that God gave them, which was the point of what he was getting at. Nehemiah is like, okay, we rebuilt the walls, but if nobody's here, what's the point? If nobody's living in here and fixing up what's going on inside, well then, you know, it's kind of like the whitewashed tomb with the rot on the inside, so to speak, right? As far as the city goes. And so here they are, and, and Nehemiah's like, okay, let's, let's get this figured out. And they went and they, they lived all throughout the land. Chapter 12, I'm not going to read verse 1 through 26. Lots of names again. <laughs> but here's what that section is speaking of. The section is a reminder of the Levites and the priests that had returned. And I think this is kind of cool, you guys, because the reality is, is that the call to ministry is something that we all have. Do you understand that? There's something specific and special about a call to be a pastor, but the reality is, is that we're all called to go out into the world and to tell people about Jesus. You're called to be a preacher, to go out and speak the word of God to other people, to go out and live a life that shines the example of Christ. But it is kind of cool that they take the time to like make mention of these names. Think about this, you guys. These are all throughout different parts of history. This first group is about 100 years prior when the first group came back with Zerubbabel. And so from verse 1 to 11, they name these heads of the priests and the brethren that came back, the Levites and the priests that came back. It's just kind of cool. Here are their names. People that were, do you remember when Zerubbabel came back? Do you remember what happened? They barely could pull anybody. Nobody wanted to leave. And so they had to go through it a second time, right, to gather up more because they're like, holy cow, we don't have enough of these, we don't have enough Levites and priests. Like, what are we doing? And so this is this group that was like, yeah, we're going to go. We're going to do this. It's special. The next section between verse 12 and 21 speaks of the priests in the days of Jehoiakim. Or jo- uh, yeah, Jehoiakim. And then the final section speaks of the Levites during the reign of Darius that are laid out between verse 22 and 26. And you guys remember Darius kind of brought that up because he was superstitious. And remember the Persians, they kind of had this idea that like they were cool with whatever religion. They didn't care that you went and did your thing. They actually liked it. Why? Because then it was one more God, quote unquote, for them to be prayed over 
for goodness and for things. And so remember Darius had sent them out and told them like, here's the only like thing I've got for you to do. I'm gonna give you a special stipend. You're gonna get tax breaks. You're gonna get these things. But in return, you're gonna pray for me and my family. Remember that? And so it lays out these guys that came back during the reign of Darius. So let's keep reading verse 27. This is like the fastest two chapters we've ever gone through. Verse 27 says this. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, so at this point, Nehemiah is through explaining all these things. And now we're looking at the dedication of the wall. It says, now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgivings and singing with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem, from the villages of the uh, Netophathites and from the house of Gilgal and from the fields of Geba and Azavamath. And the singers had built, uh, for the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people the gates, and the walls. So you guys, Nehemiah, he went around after naming all these things. He went around and he gathered up all the Levites. Everyone from everywhere. Not just the, you know, the thousand and so that was actually in the city. No, he went and gathered up a bunch. All of them. Every one of them. The singers, the Levites, everybody. He brought them all in in order to dedicate the wall. This was an important celebration. And I need us to hear this. This important celebration, do you notice what it was really about? Why was he worried about the Levites? Why wasn't he just like, hey man, it's gonna be a party. Like bring everybody in. No. I mean, think about this. It's something that struck me. Do you guys know about Mardi Gras? What's Mardi Gras about? Hmm? What's Mardi Gras about in America? It's partying. It's getting beads by women showing off their what their chest, right? It's all sorts of things that Mardi Gras has turned into. What is Mardi Gras really? It's a holy celebration. That's the point. There's a lot to it. Fat Tuesday has meaning. All these different things have meaning. And guess what? We don't know any of it anymore because all it is to us is a way to get drunk and for men to throw beads at women for doing certain things, right? And that's not it, but I mean, that's the mass majority of what I know Mardi Gras to be. It's sad. It it should never be so. But that's what the world wants to do. What is Christmas? Celebration of the birth of Christ. That's what Christmas is. What does it become? Not that. What is Easter? Right? A celebration of the risen Christ from the grave. What does it become? Easter bunnies and chocolate. I mean, listen, I'm thankful for the Reese's peanut butter cups, but that's not what it's about, right? We, the world wants to do that to everything. And I love that Nehemiah here, he could have like been like, man, we just celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles and we, we were in the midst of this revival and that's awesome, God. But can you just give us a moment to just do nothing and just celebrate the fact that it's like, just let us have fun with this. But no, that's not his heart. His heart is like, God, you did this in 52 days. It was you that did it all. And so of course we're gonna center this whole celebration around you, Yahweh. I think it's an important point to remember. 
Listen, there are a lot of churches that celebrate their 100th anniversary, and I got to say, I've been to one or two. One of them was just amazing. It was celebrating what God had done over the 100 years, but I went to the other one, and you know what it was really about? How so-and-so granted a certain amount of money to get this stained glass window, and how this person donated all this money, and we got the carpet, and, how, and I'm like, and who cares? Who, who cares? It had no value. It had no meaning. And the sad part was is that the deadness of that service was very much reflective of the deadness of the congregation. You guys, it's important that as a church for us, you guys, that when we celebrate things, I pray that we never get to a place where we're celebrating us because it's always a celebration of Christ. Worship every Sunday, worship every Wednesday, anytime we're worshiping God, who are we celebrating? Not the person that can sing. Definitely not us drummers, right? No, we're celebrating God. We're celebrating the fact that we have the freedom here in America to sing praise and honor to him. And guess what? It's just as celebratory in Iran or China where they have to sing under their breath for fear of dying. It is, I would say, just as celebratory as it is here. Does it look different? Heck yeah, but it is the same level of celebration. The people didn't start looking around at the wall and being like, man, look at what we did. Look at how amazing we are. We're pretty awesome. Nehemiah, you were just a cupbearer, but you're a pretty darn good engineer. Look at what you did. Woo! Impressive. No. They didn't think they did a good job on their own power. And so what did Nehemiah do? He's like, man, we're going to start this whole thing off by getting everyone together that God has gifted and ordained in order to do the work of his temple, the work that he had laid out for him. And and he's like, they're going to be the ones that lead this. And so we're going to see that that is exactly what happens. So you guys, I just want to remind us, man, there are a lot of people in our church that are like successful in business. There are a lot of people in church that are super gifted. We are blessed with a very gifted church in multiple ways. And that's awesome. But I pray that none of our church, no one in our church ever gets such a big head that they start thinking that that means something. That they start thinking that like they've got something, they're God's gift and they're ready to, to really just come and dazzle us, right? I've had a couple conversations with people that are like, well, I just want you to know that I'm a great teacher and, uh, and I just, I really need you to hear that pastor because, you know, and I'm like, that is usually the very first sign that I'm like, hmm. Listen. We're not great at anything. God gifts us to do stuff. That's the reality. Has God gifted us? Yes. I'm not acting like we should just beat ourselves down and be like, I'm nothing. I'm lower than dirt. No, you're not. You're gifted by God. Use the giftings he's giving you. Just don't get it twisted (laughs) in the process. We should celebrate all that God has given us. We should celebrate all that God is doing while always continuing to recognize that it's only through the power of the spirit that any of these things are being accomplished. Next thing I want to look at in this section is, do you guys notice that whenever they showed up, the very first thing they did was purify themselves. The priests and the Levites purified themselves. You guys, it has to start there. It has to. The reality is, is that those that are called to lead spiritually, so I'm looking at me in this section, this section really hit me. If I'm not first going to God and dealing personally with my own heart before I stand up here and teach, I'm wrong. 
I may be able to get up and stir your emotions. I may be able to yell loud enough that everyone's like, woo, that had power. But guess what? There's no real power there. Why? Because I'm not right before the Lord. So I have a lot of work to do before I even get up here to do anything. Worship team, you have a lot of work to do before you get up here and do anything. If your heart is not in a place of worship all week long and your heart is not pure before the Lord, I can tell you, you might stir people emotionally, but you're gonna get down off the stage and be like, huh, something was missing, right? We know that. Can I say this? We're all called to lead spiritually, aren't we? If you go to your workplace and you have an opportunity to speak to somebody and you know that you're just not in the right headspace because you have neglected to spend time with the Lord all that week, I can tell you this. Yeah, teach his word. Tell people about his word. Don't shy away from speaking truth. God can still use you even in your weakness, but the reality is, man, prepare your heart. Get ready, right? Purify yourself. That's something we should be doing daily, getting in his word, repenting of our sin, I recommend because I'm an, I'm an idiot and I forget things. Man, I just try to repent as soon as I do something wrong because I'll, I'll probably forget by the end of the night, you know? So for me, my repentance a lot of times is like hopefully if I, if I know I've done wrong is right away to be like, oh man, I'm sorry to whoever I messed with and God forgive me, right? Like just deal with it right then and there. It makes a difference, man. We purify ourselves and how are we personally purified? Through the blood of Christ. How were they purifying themselves? Through the blood of an animal, right? They splash in blood on themselves. We are all needing the blood of Christ in our lives. So after they were purified, what did they do? They went about doing the business that they were called to do. They went and purified the rest of the people. What does that mean? Hey, repent of your sins. Get rid of that junk. If you need to do a sacrifice, let's do a sacrifice. And then guess what? I'm gonna sprinkle you with blood. That's probably what they did. And then they went around and purified the walls and the gates. You know what? Thank God we don't have to walk around and purify our houses. <laughs> That's never coming out. I don't know what I'm going to do. Should have got a higher gloss paint. <laughs> Honey, we're going to worship. Or we're going to uh, purify our house when we get home. Here's the deal. This is true. Without a purified and repentant heart, we can't really ever enter into worship God. That's just the truth. And it makes me sad because, to be honest, there are plenty of people that walk into a lot of different churches that, for whatever reason, aren't ready to admit that they're wrong in a certain area. They've been fighting with their wife all week or they've been having an argument with their kids and they're just whatever. And maybe somewhere deep inside, the Holy Spirit's like, you know what, just, just let it be. Like, ask for forgiveness, deal with it you with your parents or whatever that looks like. And they refuse to. And so they walk in here and they wonder why worship seems so anemic. They wonder why the word just didn't seem to have any power in their hearts today. And sometimes, a lot of times, I think it's because of this. They're not able to enter in because they're choosing to sit on the outside instead of repenting and entering in. Verse 31, let's keep reading. So I brought the leaders, this is Nehemiah, right? So I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two large Thanksgiving choirs. That is a fitting word. <laughs> One went to the right hand on the wall toward the refuse gate and the other went 
uh, I'm sorry, after them went Hoshia and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah and Ezra, uh, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and some of the priests' sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Mac- uh, Micaiah, the son of Zachor, the son of Asaph, and his brethren, Shemaiah, Azarel, Malali, Malai, blah, Milalai, <laughs> Gilalai, Mai, <laughs> uh, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, and their musical instru- with their musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra the scribe went before them by the fountain gate. By the fountain gate in front of them, they went up the stairs of the city of David on the stairwell of the wall beyond the house of David, as far as the water gate eastward. So what's happening here? We're told that this first choir, you guys, they started most likely at the valley gate. And if you guys remember, that's actually where Nehemiah started his survey when he first arrived. He went out the valley gate and kind of went all the way around the city and came back, right? And this group, we're told right in here, is, was led by Ezra the scribe. Again, this is, a, this is a religious thing. This is a thing that they're saying, God, you're going to receive the glory. You're going to receive the honor for this wall. And so they walked counterclockwise from where they started around the wall. And they spread out, basically. And they just walked and walked and walked. And there was instruments. There was singers. There was all sorts of people ready to be a part of this first group. And so let's keep reading about the second group. Verse 38, it says this. The other Thanksgiving choir went the opposite way, and I was behind them with half of the people on the wall going past the tower of the ovens as far as the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, uh, above the old gate, above the fish gate, the tower of Hanani, the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate, and they stopped by the gate of the prison. So the two Thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God, likewise, I and half the rulers with me. And the priests, Eliakim, those guys uh, were with trumpets. And also all those guys, Uzi and Johanna and all those guys, the singers, sang loudly with Jezriah, the director. Also that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. You guys, this other other choir went clockwise, right? From the starting point. So they both just went all the way around, both ways, right? So that the choirs were eventually kind of encircling the entire 12 acres of ground that the walls enclosed. So imagine the size of these choirs. They're pretty big. They were huge. Think about the fact that there were three, I mean, this is, we're talking about like at least 30, if one-tenth was 3,000, so we're talking at least 30,000, and that was just the men. So imagine, we're talking a lot of people. So here they are all inside, but then these specific Thanksgiving choirs spread out all around the wall, up above, everybody else spread out all around. Imagine the scene, you guys, gifted singers, gifted musicians, those that God had given the special job of leading others to worship. Singing, what we read here is with all they had, right? They were giving it all they got. They were singing loudly. The musicians playing with all they had. The people joining in the praise, giving God what he was due. The entire population inside the city rejoicing for what God had done. Think about that, you, you guys. I, I think it's amazing. Imagine what it must have sounded like. 
it makes me think of going to a stadium and having it filled to capacity. Think about it, you guys. I don't know what Foxborough holds. I think most of them hold 50,000. So think maybe around that number. Full of people. All of the gifted people up on the top rows just singing down inside of that bowl. And all the people inside filling up that whole thing, just singing. Imagine. Is it any wonder they were heard afar off? It's awesome. It's amazing to think through and to to think that through. I I don't know, you guys. I mean, I've never been to a Billy Graham crusade or anything. I wasn't around whenever he was doing that stuff. But even if you look at like um, some of the more modern day, right? Like Greg Laurie does stuff. But even then, you guys, they're not filling that whole stadium. Think about how much, how amazing it would be to be a part of something like that, to just hear that many people just singing praise, just giving it their all for God. I can't imagine. I think it would be amazing. And then we're also told that they were sacrificing him, giving him more glory and honor, and even just in the way that they were living their lives. You guys, they've been in revival. They've been doing this whole thing now for for weeks. And it wasn't just words. It was actions. They're walking it out. They, They literally uprooted themselves, one-tenth of them, and walked into this rubble of a city and said, this is our home, we're gonna fix it. They'd been doing that as they built the wall through all of the adversity of Sambalot and Tobiah. Through all of these things, they've been walking it out. And you guys, the message tonight is this idea of revival in the mundane because what I didn't read was the mundane stuff. Hey, one-tenth of you, we're gonna take cast lots and you're gonna move here. That's pretty mundane. One-tenth of you, gather up your stuff, stick it on a donkey and move here. Everyone that's ever moved in their life would probably qualify that as a mundane task, correct? What else do we read? Hey, the rest of you, go out and keep doing your thing. What you're already doing, just keep doing it. That's mundane. I would say 90% of our lives are, is made up of the mundane, wouldn't you say? And probably 5% is the really high points where you're like, yeah, having a kid, getting married, right? Doing all these things, like just things in your life that you would qualify as like, whoa, right? Maybe for when you're a little, little kid going to Disney World, maybe I never did, but you get it? Like something like that. You're like, okay, that might chalk up to the 5%. And we have the 5% of the low stuff, right? The death of your parents, the death of a friend, things like that, that you're just like, oh man, Right? Like the stuff that just wrecks you. But 90% of it is just day by day by day by day life. And I want you guys to see that, yes, here's a high point. But that high point isn't like, hey, we got to womp it up now because here we are. No, that high point is a result of all of the other days of mundaneness that they were walking out in the revival that they were already in. And how were they in revival? By being in his word all the time. We're going to keep reading that they stay in his word. They keep, they want to know more. They want to know, God, what do you got for us? How do you want us to walk this out? They stay close, man. They want to know more about God and they want to understand how to serve him better, you guys. And man, I think it's, it's an important message for us because the modern day church wants to do nothing but chase the high point. We want the emotional high. We want the worship that rocks our faces off. 
right? We want, the, we want the message that is only just the good stuff, right? We don't want to hear the hard stuff. We want a lot of things in the modern day church. And the reality is, is that if we look all throughout scripture, you guys, Paul spent many more mundane days than he did high days. And I would say this, for Paul, he spent many more low days probably than he spent high days, right? We have a lot of examples in scripture and most of them are not just constant high. Jesus himself was not constantly on a high point of like, yeah, no, he went through 40 days of temptation, right? John tells us, man, if we wrote everything down that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books. There wouldn't be enough paper to write them all. How many of those would be slipped in today, <laughs> right? Yelled at Peter again. <laughs> Don't write that down, <laughs> right? Man, let's keep reading verse 44. It says this. more of the mundane. And at the same time, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouse for the offerings, the first fruits and the tithes, together into them from the fields of the cities and portions specified by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who ministered. Both the singers and the gatekeepers kept the charge of their God and the charge of the purification, according to the command of David and Solomon his son. For in the days of David and Asaph of old, there were chiefs of the singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. In the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, all Israel gave their portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, a portion for each day. They also consecrated holy things for the Levites, and the Levites consecrated them for the children of Aaron. You guys, oh man. So Nehemiah took the time to use this day. Even in the midst of this high point, do you see what he was doing? He's like, people are still, man, we've already got all this tithe that got brought in. We already have all this stuff that's been brought in and people are in such a state of revival that they're like, look, God is abundantly blessing us. We've got more and they're giving more and they're just, they're just doing their thing, man. They just want to see God move in their lives. And so in order to accomplish the task from all this influx, because this was yet another day of giving, he appointed leaders. He's like, man, we need people that are going to be in charge of making sure that this stuff gets to where it's supposed to be within the temple complex, that it makes its way to where it needs to be. We read that the people were happily and obediently serving God. And you guys, when we do that, when a church is healthy and doing that, and can I say to you guys, I think our church is pretty darn healthy in this area, but here's why I know that, because there is no lack. There's no lack an unhealthy church will be a struggling church. It's just a fact. And I'm, listen, I, I want you to hear me. I'm not just talking about finances. That is one way that it shows itself. But there'll be a lack in outreach. And there'll be a lack of inviting people to church. And there'll be a lack, most importantly, you guys, of people actually out in the world talking about Jesus from that particular church. And that's sad. But here there was no lack. And you guys, God cares for all of us. And I think we learn how much that's actually true the more we learn to give and trust him with it. 
right? We're, we're told that in scripture. Man, try me on this. We talked about this last week. Try me on this. I'm not trying to stay just on the money. I'm talking about our lives, you guys. Money's just a piece of that. Your time, the effort you're putting into learning a song to be on the worship team to say, man, I really want to do and know this, God, so that I can be a blessing to the rest of the congregation. I'm going to give of my time and of my effort to get that done. I promise you, the more you try him on it, the more he's going to show up. I believe it. I think it's true. I think we learn how true that is the more we give. The more we trust. So this was an amazing time of restoration and revival. And it was continuing. Right? It was just continuing. It was continuing from the high points and all the celebrations and all the stuff. Even into the mundane everyday tasks. It didn't change their heart. They were still on fire for the Lord. And you guys, when we think back through all the revivals and we, we look at them and we're like, and even honestly, Billy Graham crusades, we look at them and we're like, wow, how amazing is that to look and watch the videos of everybody, you know, seeing Greg Laurie crusades and seeing the, the Harvest America when there's tons and tons of people, thousands of people. Calvary Las Vegas just went, Awaken Las Vegas just went through and they did something in Tijuana and, and, and I saw pictures and there's thousands of people up there get, receiving Christ. That's awesome. That's amazing, and I don't want to take anything away from that moment, but do you know where the real rubber meets the road? Them showing up at a church and being a part of that body and going through their life day by day by day. That's where the growth happens. That's where the rubber actually meets the road, in the mundane. So if I, I really, you guys, I want us to, tonight to take away from these two chapters the beauty and simplicity of an obedient life that is mostly mundane and normal, with moments of amazing soaring highs and some crushing lows, right? That's our life, if you were to sum it up. And we're all experiencing. Nobody here escapes any of those things. My prayer is, you guys, is that we become like this guy named Brother Lawrence. You guys ever hear Brother Lawrence? Brother Lawrence was a French, yeah, I know you heard of it. My wife heard of it because I love Brother Lawrence. He was this French monk that lived in the 1600s. And he has this really tiny book. And here's the thing. Brother Lawrence wasn't a very intelligent guy. He wasn't really, he couldn't read. He wasn't capable of much, but he felt a calling by the Lord to become a monk. And so he went and he joined this monastery. And they were like, well, you know, man, you're just not, you're not cut out. Like he couldn't, couldn't do the readings, couldn't really participate that way. And so they were like, you know what you can do? You can cook for us. And you can go out and work the land and we'll help you, of course. They weren't just making him a slave and doing that, no. But they were like, you can do these things. And so he fell in love with this whole idea. And so he was just a simple guy that found revival in the mundane. He was tasked with working the grounds and preparing the meals and keeping the place tidy. And the other monks, you guys, as he walked that out, they were so amazed by the simplicity of an obedient heart, by the, the heart that he had, that they were like, Brother Lawrence, like, tell us, what, what is it? Like, what do you see in these things? And this book is super tiny, and it's actually written by the other monks that were literally just writing down his thoughts as he spoke them. And so I want to end tonight with two quotes from Brother Lawrence, but I want to speak before I get to there of who he was, man. He would say that there is... Uh, sacredness in peeling a potato. Think about that. Do you see sacredness in peeling a potato? I don't. He would talk about the fact that there was a, uh, 
an intimacy with the Lord that can be found by weeding the garden. He saw things differently. And, and I think just like those other monks, I believe there's something there for all of us. And I think we see it in this book, in Nehemiah. I think it fits perfectly in with what we've just been reading. They were in the midst of revival in spite of the fact that their life 90% of the time was absolutely mundane. And Christians, I think we need to grow in that because church, the modern day church has sold us a bill of goods that I think is garbage. That we need lights and fog machines and all this stuff for God to move. No, we don't. You guys, we don't even need what we have. We need Jesus loves me right? That's really what we need. We need God to move in us, whatever that looks like, period. We don't need all this extra stuff. Why do we do all this extra stuff? Because God is using it for his glory. Amen. I don't want to take anything away from any of it. I'm glad that we have people that can watch online. I'm glad that we have people that can do those things. But the reality is at the end of the day, what do we need? We need hearts that are ready to receive. And we need people that are saying, God, I, I, not only do I want to receive what you're saying, but I want it to change me. Right. If that happens, I promise God is going to move and it will be in revival even in the mundane. Even when you're at work just plugging away on your computer, you're still going to be in revival. God's still going to be moving through your life. You're going to see things differently. So here is the first quote by Brother Lawrence. He says this, we ought not to be weary of doing little things for the love of God who regards not the greatness of the work, but the love of with which it is performed. Let that sink in, you guys. Nobody here is Billy Graham. Nobody here is fill in the blank with whatever famous person you want to, that has notoriety and clout, right? This church, our impact is being felt here and that's awesome and I praise God for it and maybe someday the Lord's gonna do something different with it but to be honest with you, I wouldn't trade this moment right now for anything because I love that God has us working right here doing little things and doing it hopefully with the love of, for the love of God because <laughs> I think that has more impact in God's kingdom than having a, a, a nationwide or a worldwide audience. Another Brother Lawrence quote, he says this, we can do little things for God. I turn the cake that is frying on the, plan, on the pan for love of him. And that done, if there's nothing else to call me, I prostrate myself and worship before him who has given me grace to work. Afterwards, I rise happier than a king. I'm telling you guys, if you ever get a chance to read this tiny little book, it will take you forever because it is that thick of just goodness. <laughs> you guys, Here's a guy that's like, man, I can cook something and I can do it for the love of God. I can do it because God has called me to do this task. And I can actually, if there's nothing else in this moment, if you're at home and you're doing laundry, guess what you can do? You can go out from that laundry once the laundry machine has started and you're like, you know what? I got a moment to take a break. Lay flat on your face and just worship God. If you're at work and you're working, and you're like, you know what? I got a breather. Don't get online. Stop for a second and just spend time with the Lord. You don't have to lay flat on your face. You can do that in your own heart. There are so many ways, you guys, that we can practice this. And I believe that as we do these things and as we just say, God, you are more important than any other thing I'm doing. And yet, 
when you've given me the grace to have a job or the grace to do a certain thing, you've given me two arms so that I can do the laundry, or you've given me the ability to peel a potato, or you've given me all these things, God, even in that, thank you. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to just spend time with you in this. It's beautiful. It really is. So like, you guys, I just, I want us to learn to seek God in all things and choose to find him in all things, even in the mundane things. Because I believe, you guys, it's gonna teach us more and more to be walking in the spirit, not in the flesh, right? And I think this, I think it'll help revive us even in the smallest things. Let's pray. Man, Lord, I thank you for this message. And God, (laughs) I think it's fitting that we are so small tonight because Lord, you wanted to say something to these specific people, God, and you know what what is gonna happen after this, Lord, and who all is gonna listen. And God, I pray, Father, that your message would go forth in power, Lord, that we would learn how to be revived in the mundane, God, how to be revived in the small things, God, because Father, I don't know that your plan, Lord, it's clearly obvious, God, that you choose certain people and you choose to use them in a mighty and a powerful way, God. We have the 12 apostles, God. We have the apostle Paul. We have these people, Lord God. But, but man, Lord, there are countless, countless people, Lord God, that Paul ministered to that then in turn went and ministered in mighty and amazing ways, but in small ways, God. Lord, I pray, Father, that we would be like those people, faithfully walking it out with you, faithfully, Lord, seeking to see you move in us and through us, God. Lord, making an impact for your kingdom in our sphere of influence, God. Making an impact here in tiny little city of Dover, God, or in whatever city we live in, Lord God. Father, and if you choose to do more with that, Father, it is entirely up to you. But God, I know this. When we get to heaven, Lord, if we have sought to do our best, Lord, to just serve you and seek your face, God, there will be no uh, lack There will be no lack, Father, of reward for us all in heaven. God, when we get there, you're gonna say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, Lord, not because of anything we've done, but Father, because you love us so much that you sent your son. And so God, we don't walk around thinking we've got to do anything, but yet at the same time, Lord, you sent your son to die and rise again for us. Why wouldn't we give our lives for you in service to you? God, move in us. Revive our hearts, Lord, even in the most most mundane things, God. Father, as we come into Thanksgiving tomorrow, God, I pray, Father, that you would fill our hearts with Thanksgiving. Fill our hearts, Lord, with reminders of the many, many things, Lord, that you've given us, Father. The miraculous and amazing, Lord, even the hard things, Father, that teach us something, Lord. It teaches us to have hope in something that's coming next, God. And Lord, I would say most of all, Father, in the little mundane things that you've just tasked us with day by day, Father, for our coworkers and for our, for our jobs, God, and for, Father, our family members and all the people, Lord God, in our lives, Lord, that maybe uh, drive us a little nuts or just are a little crazy, Lord God. Father, I thank you and, and pray, Father, for each one of us, Lord, that we would come to a place where we would recognize how you want to use us. It may be the most simple ways in their lives, God. And Father, maybe that is showing up on Thanksgiving Day and peeling potatoes because you know your mom don't like it. Or whatever, God. Lord, in every way, Lord, we can find you. I pray we do, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks so much for listening to this message from Great Bay Calvary Church in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our services or need prayer for something going on in your life, come connect with us at greatbaycalvary.com.